I've tried to adopt a policy of, right, if there's anything you want to do, do it now. Because when you've been quite ill, it wakes you up to think, no, you're not invincible. You're not going to carry on forever. I'm Charmaine Griffiths, Chief Executive of the British Heart Foundation and host of this special series of podcasts celebrating 60 years of pioneering research into heart and circulatory disease. As part of this series, I wanted to speak to some of our ambassadors and VIP supporters to learn more about their own personal health journeys and how the BHF's research has played a role in transforming or even saving their lives or those of loved ones. Hello and welcome. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dame Jacqueline Wilson, author of more than 110 books and winner of countless awards for her writing. She's been appointed an OBE and a DBE. And my favourite fact of all, for a period of six years, Jacqueline was the most borrowed author in British libraries. My goodness. And I know that she's adored by millions of children and families. And I'm just so happy to be speaking to you today, Jacqueline. So huge welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. Now, I've read that when you were younger, as well as taking care to eat really well, that you used to wake up at 6.30am to go for a swim, do 60 lengths before settling into your day of writing. So it must have come as quite a shock to have been diagnosed with a heart condition. Well, it was a shock because I'd always prided myself on being the sort of person that could keep going no matter what. And um, I, I worked very hard. I went out and did lots of different events, talking to children. I sat signing books and chatting to kids for hours. And I just thought I could keep on going like that. And then I think it was about 13 years ago, I suddenly felt tireder than usual. And uh, for quite some time, I thought, put yourself together. And I can be a bit of a hypochondriac at times. And I thought, you're just imagining it. You're, you're just wanting to slow down and take it easy. And I do remember looking in my mirror one morning, and I felt particularly exhausted. And I had very tight feelings around my chest, very heavy feelings. And I said, no, it's all your imagination. Stop it. Pull yourself together. Um, but then I started to get symptoms at night in that I went to sleep okay, but then I would wake up and I would be coughing. And it wasn't the usual sort of cough. And I found the only way I could stop coughing was actually to sit up. Um, and I was spending half the night just sitting up, coughing, Gosh. feeling unwell. So common sense kicked in and I went to the doctor. Um, I think they probably thought, yes, you know, middle-aged woman and um, possibly having a bit of an anxiety attack or something. And this particular doctor, I don't go to that surgery anymore, um, uh, arranged for me to have blood tests, but they were going to take about a month or so. And, um, and so it sent me on my way saying, no, everything's fine, but we'll just check. And then that night, I, I really couldn't sleep at all. And I just started to know, actually, I'm ill and uh, went back to the surgery. Um, it, it had to be quite persistent. But eventually I had another doctor who said, hmm, I wonder why this is. Let's get you up to the hospital straight away for a blood test and we'll have an X-ray and then come back tomorrow and we'll see what's what. And then initially at the hospital, they said, you've got 
um, a bad lung infection because apparently my lungs were bigger. Can they get bigger? I don't know, but it seemed to be that way. Um, and clearly it was fluid building up. And then um, there was a particular thing that he was testing for in the blood test. And he was so astonished by the result, he actually asked for it to be tested again. And then I, I love this dog, he's got a sense of humor. And he said, well, there you are sitting in front of me and you look in the pink, but theoretically you should be dead by now. <laughs> and and uh, my, my heart was failing. And, um, and he said, really, we need to get you to have a scan properly and an angiogram and everything. And wonderfully, uh, he worked miracles. And then I ended up in Brompton Hospital as kind of, right, let's get us sorted out quite quickly. And so I didn't really have too long pondering and worrying because everything seemed to be happening quite so fast. Although it was, was a bit strange because I'd been so used to telling myself, no, you're, you're just imagining it. And some suddenly it was happening for real. Mm. Well, I know so many of the people listening to this will have been touched by heart and circulatory disease in their lives or their loved ones and will recognise that feeling as well of actually listening to your body and also knowing when things aren't right. So I know that will resonate with a lot of us. How did it feel when you got that diagnosis and you're being whisked off to the Brompton? I realised something's wrong and I'm not just being an idiot and imagining it, but it was a sort of, gosh, I might die. And that was pretty awful. But um, I, I have a lovely partner, a lovely grown up daughter. They were obviously very concerned, but it was lovely to know that, that they were there and, and rooting for me. And when I went to the hospital um, to have a defibrillator put in, they both came with me. And um, it's lucky that I've got two hands because I could hold hands with one on one side of the bed, hands with the other on the other side of the bed. And so it was just quite dramatic. I find I can be a, a terrible bore if I've got a cold and go around whining and say I feel so ill. When I really was ill, um, I, I just sort of got on with it really. Mm. Well, how lovely a thing to have two hands and two yes. uh, lovely people around you as well. And had there ever been any history of heart disease in your family? Well, yes, there has been. Um, my father uh, had angina and then eventually, sadly, died when he was 57. And um, I found his uh, death certificate. And bizarrely, it said left ventricular dysfunction and kidney failure. Because I did, after I got completely better from the heart failure, um, I did sadly develop kidney failure as well. And I had never really taken that in, that he died at 57 of precisely the same things that I have now. But thanks to research and, and advances in, in medicine, um, here I am, <laughs> cross fingers, carrying on for quite a while. And I know so many families will have gone through that experience as well as after their diagnosis, realising or discovering things about the um, people who've yes. gone before and sadly passed away. And like you at the, the BHF, we're so passionate about research and the ability for it to transform and save lives that um, it powers so much of what we do and gets, gets us out of bed in the morning as well. So you mentioned your ICD and having your surgery. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about that? 
Well, I went into hospital and they take down all the details many times as they have to. And then I had the operation the next day. It's very strange because now in x-rays, I look as if I've swallowed a small uh, iPod <laughs> or something. And I had a wonderful, wonderful surgeon who was extremely careful. A colleague of his, a plastic surgeon, had given him lessons on how to sew it up really, really carefully so that um, I would have as neat a scar as I possibly could have. Um, and I came around quite quickly and um, that seemed fine. And my partner Trish, my daughter Emma were there and thinking, oh, thank God, everything's fine. And I was really quite perky and, and cutting away to them. And then looked down and on my left hand side, it seemed to be swelling and and I'm, I'm quite small chested. <laughs> suddenly, one of my breasts was becoming like the wonderful Dolly Parton. <laughs> they ran off to get a nurse and wonderfully the, the fantastic surgeon was nearby. And he just said, bind her up, bind her up tightly which I was, and, and it, it subsided, everything was fine. So no complications whatsoever, apart from this just initial rush of blood. But I'm just saying this, just in case this happens to anybody else. And it's, it's not a good cheap way of getting <laughs> breast improvement. <laughs> it was quite good to go back to my normal state. Oh, Jacqueline, thank you so much for sharing that. Honestly, you made me cry with laughter, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm shedding a tear. What a wonderful story. And tell me a little bit about what it was like to leave hospital. I was in hospital, I think, about four days. And then it was good to get back home. But then I did feel a little, not exactly frightened, but you think, oh gosh, this is it now. And um, I've been told very sensibly, uh, don't raise your left arm um, for about six weeks because the defibrillator is sort of attached to the heart with three wires and it's quite easy. Well, I don't know how easy, but they said we don't want them detached. And of course, every time I moved, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I'm getting unhooked. <laughs> And also, um, it's so wonderful if you've got someone to help take care of you for those first few days. I do feel um, it must be quite tough if you're single and you haven't got a kind friend because you feel a bit helpless. You want to wash your hair after being in the hospital, but you can only really do it one-handed. So I was a bit like a, a toddler. I had my hair washed for me. <laughs> and then, you know, could take it easy and have breakfast in bed and, and be cosseted a bit. Um, I have had times in my life when I've been single and not very well, and you just have to tough it out and get on with it. But it's so much easier if somebody, just for the first few days, can, can help out. And I found I recovered quite quickly. I had a lot of very dramatic bruising, I suppose that was the blood, um, and which I rather enjoyed. You were saying, look, look, <laughs> really impressive. But, but that faded away. And um, within a couple of weeks, I, I felt 
reasonably okay, in fact, better than I had been for weeks before I, I discovered that I did have this heart failure. Thank you for sharing that. So Trish and Emma must have been obviously wonderful in supporting you, but they must have been worried about you as well. So how are they? And they must have been looking for reassurance and, and watching you carefully. They they were wonderful. And um, it's they, they both have their different ways of, of dealing with things and, um, and yet very supportive to each other. And then Emma went back to where she lives and her work and everything. But Trish managed to carry on valiantly. Um, in fact, it established a wonderful, wonderful habit of me getting breakfast in bed. And still to this day, 13 years later, I have my breakfast in bed. <laughs> How lucky am I? So I have been very spoiled. But um, I really found it, it, it does help to, I think as somebody to be able, without becoming a crashing bore, to say, oh, I'm so worried about it, and what if it still, you know, isn't enough to keep me going? I mean, I, I was prescribed ACE inhibitors to keep my blood pressure down and to keep the heart as, as well as it could be. Um, it was a bit of a challenge to me to think, well, I really ought to calm down just a little bit. I don't know exactly what caused the heart problems. It could have been working hard and stressed about my work. It could have been simply that I inherited the tendency. And I did, a few months before I started to get ill, I did have very, very bad flu and was coughing a lot. And it might have caused some infection or something. But who knows these things? I mean, I think the thing, once it's diagnosed, you just get, got to get on with it. Mm. But um, certainly, uh, I never thought that it would become so, so just part of what happened to me and pills that I take. Uh, just part of the pills. I mean, I wasn't expecting to have kidney failure as well, and but that didn't happen for another two or three years. So I had those years of feeling fit and well. Then the the I just a routine checkup. I was told, and the, the whole kidney thing has got strange terminology because they they said I had I know third stage kidney failure, and then there was a fourth stage, I think. And then I said, well, what happens then? And they said, end stage. <laughs> and <laughs> in many illnesses, end stage is, that's it, curtains. But luckily, um, I was dialysis is, is readily available for people. And I was on dialysis for 18 months. And then I had a transplant and, um, and you know, back to normal again well as near normal as you can be wonderful to hear and uh, and and clearly you look really well today and and in uh, good spirits too um, i'm just thinking back to you coming out of hospital and undergoing through all of that wonderful support around you and uh settling back into life and breakfast in bed i've huge envy yes. for that tell me a little bit about how was it like getting back to work Did, uh, because that was a changing experience and clearly your writing means the world to you as well so yes. what was that like how was getting back to writing and back to work well i could write in fact i think i even wrote a bit in hospital because i'm one of these sad compulsive people that 
still likes to write a bit every single day. So the writing wasn't too bad, but I'd always done lots of events, lots of literary festivals, like schools, libraries, um, and whenever a book came out, I would go on the most fabulous book tours. And I was used to doing that, loved to do that. And I couldn't for a while. I just didn't have the energy and had enough sense to see that that would not be a good idea. I did feel very bad about that because I had cancelled several events, but I did actually eventually catch up when I was feeling better and could go and do them all over again at a different time. Um, so, but the actual writing, I could still carry on. And I don't think there's any, I can't really remember which book I was writing when I did start to get ill, but um, I don't think there's any change in tone or anything. I just sort of carried on and I've been able to carry on ever since. And in terms of your wider outlook, you've talked about perhaps changing your work routine. Were there any other changes to, to in terms of your outlook on life or other things that you could or couldn't do anymore? I've tried to adopt a policy of, right, if there's anything you want to do, do it now. Because when you've been quite ill, it wakes you up to think, no, you're not invincible. You're not going to carry on forever. Try to seize the moment and live for the day. Of course, it's not possible to do that all the time, but you do get that, that sort of sweet sensation when you're convalescing. I've survived. I'm okay. And, um, so I, I have tried not to push myself too much. Um, beforehand in the evening, if I was flagging, I would have black coffee or glass of wine, give myself a second wind, carry on through the evening. Um, I don't do that now. If I'm tired, I stop and that's it. And I try not to do, you know, some big event one day and then the next day and then the next day. And of course, you know, the, the last year or year and a quarter, big events have not been possible. So in a way, um, I've, I've, I'm leading a really sensible life in that still giving interviews, still doing podcasts and, and Zooming occasionally when, when I've got the facilities. But mostly I, I lead a gentle life of um, writing, reading, uh, seeing a few friends at the moment outside, but hopefully inside too, and and swimming. And I, I love swimming. And I feel that it's good to try and keep as fit as possible. I mean, I have developed a few extra pounds during lockdown, like most people. I think it's a good idea to stay reasonably slim and, and reasonably fit. But apart from that, it doesn't really have any long-term impact on me and as a fellow swimmer i know that swimming is not just a fantastic way to stay healthy if you've got access to a pool and it's just it's also really good for you know kind of mental well-being and mental health as well as now i find it, i don't know about you but i find it a fantastic way to clear the mind really and, is. Uh, and to start the day and i mean it's a way i think it's a bit like meditating and then when you get out you feel fantastic i'm not a wild swimmer though i mean i like a relatively heated pool like I, <laughs> if it's really really cold no not for me not if it needs a wetsuit that's it that's no the, uh... <laughs> no it's 
and it destroys the joy of swimming itself. <laughs> oh, you and I share that as a fair weather swimmers in a warm pool, yes. definitely, but enjoying it. Um, thank you. I was just going to ask you, um, there are many people who will be going through a, a similar set of experiences of that diagnosis and having an ICD implanted. Would you share any advice or wisdom with them? What would you want them to know? Um, I would try not to worry too much, just occasionally. If you turn over awkwardly, you feel it's a strange sensation of being poked inside yourself. And the first time this happened to me, I thought, oh my God, you know, it's twisted round or whatever. And of course, you know, the, the hospital is there if something really untoward happened. But mostly it's just a minor, minor thing. I mean, I suppose, weirdly, you can vaguely feel some tiny little sort of red or something. Um, and you think, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wired up. But it, it's reassuring as, as well as everything else. And while I was in hospital, I was speaking to other patients who had been much more ill than me or, or maybe had to have further treatment or whatever. And they were all quite comforting about, um, you know, I'm, I'm really sort of easy stage <laughs> in a way in that, you know, so far it, it's worked and, and everything's okay. Wonderful. Tell me a little bit about your checkups and what uh, what that routine looks like for you. Well, heart-wise, um, I don't actually have to have any checkups anymore um, for the actual condition of my heart. But um, I go once or twice a year back to the Brockton to have the ICD checked over and then Apart from that, I have a device a bit like a telephone beside my bed. And somehow, I have no idea how, it can connect up with me some of the time and take readings and check um, if everything's going okay. And then it's very, very weird because when you actually go to the hospital to, to have the device checked up, they can read practically every day and, and say, ah, now there's a lot of activity on such and such a day. Uh, you know, can you think back to what that might have been, which is very, very odd. <laughs> but still, it, it's nice to have that kind of technical backup as well. And it's very quick. You just go in the pacing clinic and when you have your appointment, it's done, you're out again within 20 minutes. So it, it's, you know, not, not a bore at all. It's amazing, isn't it, what the technology can do? Yes. I guess, um, have you ever considered writing about your experiences in more depth or, or drawing kind of narratives around the heart and your experiences into your writing? I did wonder about that, but I did find, bizarrely, that for years afterwards, it was the one thing I didn't want to talk about. And um, and normally, I mean, you know, you, you can't stop me nattering away about this <laughs> or that. But I think, I don't know whether it was, because it was such a, a personal thing, I would find that if a journalist was quite interested and wanted to know all the facts, I would find, you know, I'm, my voice would start to waver. And I thought, mm. no, my, it's telling me, I don't want to talk about it. I'm absolutely fine now. But um, I also didn't really want to 
define myself by, oh, yes, she's the person with the, the different organs failing here and there. I, I, I just, you know, wanted to be the writer or the woman that wears all the big, big rings or something. And so but to anybody that was actually um, worried about their own heart, whatever, I would always be more than willing to talk about it because it, it is sometimes helpful. And, you know, medical staff are always willing to answer any questions you have but sometimes it's the the silly little things that um you know one person to another that lay person can can just make little suggestions so sometimes people have said to me that you know it's fine during the day but when they go to bed you know you can almost hear your heart and and it gives you a worried feeling about, you know, is it still carrying on? Because when you think about it, it's so odd to think we're all here simply because this strange organ inside us is beating. <laughs> and um, you do get used to that feeling and, and stop thinking about it. But it would be inevitable, I think, if if you have some some sort of it, it, it's not really a problem, but just a, a, an awareness. And maybe after you've you've had a serious heart problem, you possibly aren't sleeping very well or whatever. But, um, but from my point of view, there, there was nothing serious at all. If if I was thinking of a way where a child had a, a serious heart illness, I could just use it. But I would be quite wary. Because being honest, even though medicine can work wonders, sometimes things do go wrong. And I couldn't bear the thought of giving a child who is really seriously ill kind of false expectations that everything would be fine, just like so-and-so in a book of mine. Um, so I haven't tried to do that yet but you never know i i sometimes say no i'd never go there and yet then i do <laughs> so who knows who knows and and thank you for sharing that and i can understand the sensitivities around that and and your perspective as well and you know what? i've had the privilege of speaking to many of our fantastic ambassadors many of whom have had a heart condition or lost loved ones um themselves and and many of them share what you've just said around the importance of having good support around you people to talk to about the little things to share the emotional impact of the experience with as well as the professionals who can help you with the technical details I think you need a bit of actual comfort too. And I, di I did find when I was single that to do something like go to an aromatherapist and have lovely, gentle, soothing treatment, I, I think you need to comfort yourself after you've gone through some major illness and, and to make yourself feel sort of feminine again, maybe. Um, just just something that that makes you feel better so that um it's it's just i mean a real person is is great but if not you know you can make sure you get a real person to to make you feel better 
I think so many people will empathise with that and the importance of feeling yourself and doing things that comfort you and bring you joy, actually, and looking after yourself really well and working out what that is. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I've got a couple of questions that I'd like to finish with that um, we ask all of our guests, actually. And the first is, what has your journey and your diagnosis taught you about yourself? It's taught me that um, I can be persistent, like initially, to get the right diagnosis because I've always been somebody that, say, somebody serves me a plate of food in a restaurant and there's something seriously wrong with it. I will eat it nevertheless because I hate <laughs> making a fuss. But it has taught me that just sometimes if you are convinced that there is something really wrong with you, um, to speak up. And then it's shown me that actually you can get through really quite worrying times. And with a bit of luck, it's not quite as bad as, as you'd feared. So it, it's, helped, it's helped my self-confidence, I think, a little. Um, and it also has given me a perspective in that, I mean, when I was young, I lived in a girls' hostel and we used to talk about the things that we longed for and wished for. And one girl then, we were between 17 and 21, said, um, well, I'd like good health. And we all raised our eyebrows and thought, oh, how boring, how boring. <laughs> you can wish for anything and you wish for good health. Now, having reached my age, I'm 75 and had bad health um, over the last 13 years occasionally. Um, yeah, good health is a good thing. And I will try hard to make sure that I keep as healthy as possible. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And is there any message or anything you would want to share with anyone who's going through a diagnosis right now? It's it's a difficult one. And I think particularly now, because um, the hospitals I know inevitably have got huge waiting lists for people with serious problems. But once, once you actually get that magic appointment and it's not cancelled, I wouldn't really worry too much. So many people seem worried about going into hospital itself. And I had nothing but extreme kindness and gentleness and people joking. And um, it, it wasn't at all the scary experience that sometimes people imagine. It's, it's not actually well, for me, as bad as I thought it would be. Of course, if I had to have really, really major heart sur surgery, it's going to take much longer and it would be much more painful, I would imagine. But most of the procedures seem, I, I, I think I've got a gothic imagination and you imagine it being terrible and it's not. And um, and I don't know, we, we're all cope I think by having a sense of humor and even you know when you're you're dragging yourself out of bed and you, you've got sort of bags hanging out of you here and there I mean if, as long as you joke about it and, and you just get on with it it's fine. 
I love that spirit and agree that a little humour goes a long way in tough yes. situations and, and gets us through. Thank you for sharing that. And and Jacqueline, before I wrap up and um, thank you for supporting the BHF and spending a bit of time with us today, is there anything else you'd want to share with people listening to our podcast that you feel we've not covered? Anything on your mind? I think it's almost afterwards you have this feeling that it doesn't matter if some tiny domestic thing home is going wrong or that somebody has given you a bit of a problem to solve. All these things seem so unimportant. And what's important is actually staying alive and having loved ones or good friends around you. And that's just what you need to concentrate on. Wise words indeed. And Jacqueline, I can't thank you enough for your time today and all of your support for our work as a British Heart Foundation. It means an enormous amount um, to have your support. Thank you, Charmaine. You, you've been a wonderful interviewer and I've, I've quite enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Thank you, Jacqueline. The British Heart Foundation is celebrating 60 years of saving lives through pioneering research. There is an estimated 92,000 people living with heart failure in the UK today. Since the BHF was founded in 1961, we have funded research to improve the diagnosis, treatment and care for people living with heart failure. Our research supported many breakthroughs from introducing new drug treatments like ACE inhibitors combined with water tablets, to developing a new blood test that helps to diagnose heart failure. And these breakthroughs continue to improve the lives of people living with heart failure. An ICD is a small device similar to a pacemaker that is used to treat people at risk of dangerous abnormal heart rhythms, including people with heart failure. Almost as soon as the BHF was formed, we began funding pioneering research into the development of pacemaker technology that has paved the way for the miniature sophisticated devices we use today. As we celebrate our 60th birthday, our eyes remain firmly fixed on the future and what we hope to achieve over the next 60 years. We want a cure for heart failure, better treatments for stroke, ways to prevent vascular dementia and so much more. The BHF have been part of breakthroughs like heart transplants and pacemakers, stents and clot-busting drugs, and our goals for the decades ahead are even more ambitious. If you would like to fundraise in honour of the BHF 60th and be part of helping us continue to save lives, then please visit bhf.org.uk forward slash birthday. For more inspiring stories from our high profile supporters and our patient community, please listen to and follow the ticker tapes on the BHF website or wherever you get your podcasts. And to everyone listening, thank you for joining us. I'm Charmaine Griffiths. Bye for now. The stories, recollections and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of our special guest and not those of the BHF. If you, our listeners, have any health concerns, please seek advice from your GP or health professional. For more information about any of the conditions discussed in this podcast, please visit BHF's website, bhf.org.uk.